0: Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates
1: to Tele-Hell. If you missed it last week, we took a look at the origins of the TV movie. In particular, ABC's Movie of the Week program from the 1970s. Original motion pictures for television. ABC produces them proudly. ABC produces the Movie of the Week. We sort of left things hanging at the end by stating that by the time the program got folded into a generic Sunday Night Movie banner in the mid-70s, there was less of an emphasis on the made-for-TV stuff, and more of a focus on big Hollywood blockbusters. And that any TV movie that's ever been made since 1975 has seen a noticeable lack of quality control. Especially during the 80s and 90s when things really started to take a downhill tumble. Not that there weren't any good ones to be seen. But those moments were really meant more for miniseries, the multi-part TV movies that benefited from a larger budget. But as far as actual TV movies went back then, the term Movie of the Week was less an umbrella title for a unique presentation, and more of a colloquialistic way of saying, let's just throw shit on the wall and see what happens. And while there have been more than enough of the lesser kind of TV movies to fill up a spin-off show, we figured that the first TV movie that we cover here is not an obvious piece of cheese. Like, say, for instance, The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Bad Ronald. Or anything Tori Spelling ever did for the Lifetime Network. What, no thunder for her? Not even as Amy Fisher that one time? Huh. Well, maybe her movies would seem like beating a dead horse. Anyway, for our first TV movie, we're not going to look at something that's obviously bad, or even anything that's well-known for that matter, because something that you don't know about me is that I'm a fan of the underdog, the underappreciated, the forgotten, and for the TV movie we're looking at today, we're going to need to step outside the box, and also, onto another coast. If Belinda Carlisle considers Heaven to be a place on Earth, then she clearly never looked around Southern California in the mid-1980s as she was playing with the Go-Go's. For it is here where we get to see an excess of excess, as well as a record amount of
0: spandex. Join us as Highway 101 connects to Route 666 and ultimately lets us out onto an off-ramp to California Girls, our Movie of the Week this week.
1: Since this is a TV movie, we adjust our judgment slightly. For starters, since we have no behind the scenes information about the movie itself, anything that we enter into the Nine Circles will be based on the plot only as well as a few choice moments of acting that we would consider to be less than desirable, and also if there are any particular scenes in the movie that may be considered sin-worthy for whatever reason. Otherwise, we're just judging the movie for the movie, nothing else. So without behind the scenes info worth noting, let's talk a little about the cast first, which for a low budget mid 1980s TV movie was a surprisingly solid one. We're not talking any Oscar winners here, but at least there are people in this who I've actually heard of. Our main character is Nathan Bowser, an auto mechanic from New Jersey. He's played by another one of those actors who has gone far underappreciated over the years. Robbie Benson, who up to that point in his career made a name for himself, appearing in cult classic 70s sports movies One-on-One and Ice Castles. Fast forward six years after this movie aired, and Benson would become best known for playing this guy. You can't stay in there forever!
2: Yes, I can! Fine!
1: Go ahead and starve! If she doesn't eat with me, then she doesn't eat at all. That's right. His biggest claim to fame continues to be as the voice of the Beast in various incarnations of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Except for the live-action version because even he knew when enough was enough. Rounding out the cast were a stable of steady-working pros, including Martin Mull, Ernie Hudson, Tony Katane, Doris Roberts, and... Charles Rocket.
3: Charlie, how are you feeling after you've been shot? Oh
1: man, it's the first time I've ever been shot in my life. I'd like to know who the fuck did (laughs) it. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that Charles Rocket, the same guy who famously slipped out an F-bomb on Saturday Night Live during its infamous sixth season, actually managed to find work after that incident happened. And in a major supporting role, no less. Stranger things have happened, and we haven't even pushed play yet. Also added to the movie is our title California Girl and the Object of Benson's Affection, played by then newcomer Martha Longley. We'll meet all these people later on, but for now, in the words of legendary New York sportscaster Warner Wolf, let's go to the videotape! March 24th, 1985. Ronald Reagan begins his second term in office. The 57th Academy Awards were just one night away from crowning Amadeus as that year's best picture. And at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central and Mountain, we begin Act 1 on a cold day in the New York metropolitan area. And given the establishing shot of the much-missed World Trade Towers, it's safe to say that we're on the New Jersey side of the river, as we see how bleak everything looks around town. We also see our hero and future beast to Belle's beauty struggling to wake up and stay comfortable in sub-zero temperatures.
3: So the record-breaking cold that has been tormenting the eastern seaboard for the past two weeks is going to continue.
1: You don't say... As the weather report is wrapping up, we get a cameo from Regis Philbin, who at this point in his career was doing the morning show on New York's ABC affiliate just a little before Kathy Lee would come in and turn both of them into household names. Reg then lets the viewers know about a new sponsor that kicks off the fantasies in Benson's head. Hi,
3: speaking of California, we are pleased to announce to you today a new sponsor joining our show,
1: California Dream Cosmetics. For the California girl in you, watch. Let's pause here before we hear another note of that song, please. Naturally, with a movie called California Girls, it would be more than fitting for the people who made this movie to include the Beach Boys' song of the same name. Which, obviously, they do in this scene. And in another scene a few minutes later. And still another scene later after that. And so forth and so on until such a point where every time you hear the opening guitar riff, you'll want to cut the strings of the guitar with a pair of pliers. My point is, Unless you're a die-hard Beach Boys fan, the rampant use of the song is gonna get really old, really fast. So I'm just letting you know that now ahead of time. Benson becomes smitten with a girl who appears in the commercial, and also strengthens his resolve to visit California no matter what it takes. But alas, he has to cope with the reality of living in... New Jersey! After spending the opening credits walking to his workplace, he vents his frustrations to Winston Zeddemore himself, Ernie Hudson, who, by the way, just a few months earlier, appeared in a certain movie about busting ghosts. You talk about what you're gonna do for a
3: few weeks, then you do not. Cut out. it out, all right? Like with that promotion that Pagan promised, what, six months ago?
4: What, do you think he's gonna give it to you because he promised? Get out
3: of here. Hey, come on, man. he has gotta make up his mind any day now, right? I just... I don't want to force the issue. Force issue. I
1: don't want to force the issue. Oh, by the way, something else that's going to become just as annoying as the ample use of a Beach Boys song is just how much Benson tends to overdo it with the New Jersey voice, which may sound pretty accurate to some people, but as time marches on, you'll want someone to take out a hit on him and dump his body in the Hudson River. You know, like normal Jerseyites do. Moving on, Benson takes care of a customer's car problems, only for the customer to utter today's secret word. You know,
3: it might help, just maybe, if you tried using something called antifreeze. What do I know? In California, we don't have all these weather-related hassles. You're from California? Man, I gotta get out there someday and check it out. Well, maybe you'll get out there this year. Yeah. Yeah, Before you do, could you put some antifreeze in my car, huh?
1: Oh, yeah. Now, were this a regular movie, that one explanation is all we need. It establishes the protagonist's major desire, and that's all the audience would need to introduce themselves to the story. Unfortunately, Benson's desires in this first act are about as hammered in as a Home Depot demo, because for the remainder of the act, California is all he can think or talk about. Fortunately, Ernie Hudson brings Benson down to earth a little.
4: Nathan, you're not going to California, okay? You're gonna do just what you do every Thursday
3: night. You're gonna have dinner at your sister's house and let your mother and brother-in-law take pot shots at you. Then we'll go bowling, well, or you choke and we'll lose. And you capped the evening off by insisting
1: that you're not hung up on Barbara anymore. I'm not. past a every week. They never should have cut his lines in Ghostbusters. That's all I'm gonna say. After that buzzkill, Benson visits his family for a weekly dinner, where alongside the late great Doris Roberts, the family gives Benson the Italian version of a Jewish family's line of questioning. So mama tells
5: me you got laid off, huh? No, I didn't. I said he didn't get promoted.
3: Mama, you promised you wouldn't say anything.
5: Mom, is Uncle Nathan a lie No, dear. He's a mechanic.
3: Same difference.
5: Don't take cheap shots at my brother. That was humor. Come on, he can take it. Right, Nathan?
3: This was exactly what I didn't want to happen.
1: After a lengthy ribbing process, we once again get the utterance of the magic word. I think I'm going to go out to California and check it out.
3: I California
1: again? My sentiments exactly, Marie Barone. Not even 15 minutes in and this pining for California shtick is already as old as me making jokes about... New Jersey! As the family laughs at one of their own over their unrequited dreams, we then join Benson and Ernie at a bar for more bitch moaning. And just as he continues to do so, guess what we hear again? In an effort not to keep playing the song, because we know how expensive music can be sometimes, let's just say it's this particular playing that convinces Benson to leave America's armpit once and for all, much to Winston's chagrin. Nate,
4: but all I'm saying
3: is what it, What do you really know about California? I'm not talking posters here, I'm not talking fantasy, no, I'm talking but, what do you really right. know about California? Alright, you wanna know what I know? Alright, I know... That is where people go when they want to wipe the slate clean, and man, I know that's where I want
1: to be. And sure enough, Benson goes through with it, and he's on his way to California. I especially found the part where he boards a plane to be extra nostalgic because back in 1985, he didn't need to worry about body scanners or shoe bombs. Ah, the simple days. Act 2 begins with Benson en route to California, where we meet our next character in what I can only describe as your standard 80s uniform of a white jacket. Khaki pants and a pink shirt. No planes to California get jammed with refugees bound for the promised land. Yeah, like me. (laughs) That's right. It's Mr. F bomb himself, Charles Rocket. I'd like to know who fuck did (laughs) it. Unfortunately, for the sake of this being an ABC TV movie, we don't get to hear him drop any more of those but he does let Benson know what he's going to be in for once he lands.
4: You know, the best thing about California ain't the
1: ladies. I mean, there are enough ladies to go around.
4: No, no, the best thing about California, it ain't home.
1: After they land, we get the first sign that this may be more of a fantasy movie than we think it is, as Rocket invites Benson to stay at his house. Because that seems like a rational thing to do, right? strike up a conversation with somebody you just met on an airplane, and have that same somebody be trusting enough so that they move in with you as soon as you land without knowing anything else about that other person.
4: Look, I've got a big condo with an extra bedroom, Why don't you stay at my place for a while. I know you don't have a place to stay, and I know it was no piece of cake for me to move to California 14 years ago. You're welcome at my home.
0: Well, I'm ready when you are. Just like that, he's living in a
1: stranger's house. If I were to pull something like that when I was alive, I'd probably be dead again in five minutes from multiple gunshot wounds and bleach stains. Either that, or people really are that friendly in the Golden State, in Los Angeles, no less. So, as we begin to suspend our disbelief in this story, we get something that no movie about LA would be complete without. Well, aside from that happening a third time, We get ourselves a good old-fashioned travelogue disguised as a montage, showing everybody all the relevant things there is to see in L.A. Various landmarks, bikini-clad women, the LAPD not causing police brutalities, hey, maybe this is a fantasy movie after all. The video postcard goes on for far too long, possibly because they need to pad out what little plot there is by any means necessary. After that plot slowdown, We find out more about how Rocket is able to afford such a swanky set piece. What do you do for a living? Uh, I'm a professional photographer. Really? Yeah, I mostly take pictures of stars at premieres
4: and charity balls, real high society stuff. Yeah. But every once in a while, I do take on a bar mitzvah.
1: Okay, folks, remember that bit of information because it's gonna come in handy in a few minutes. Not for anything too important, but something that kinda bugged me about this movie. In the meantime, Benson soaks up some beach living while writing a postcard to his ghost-busting friend.
3: Dear Ernie, here I am in the dead winter basket on the beach in the warm California sun. It's everything i ever dreamed of would be, better than the
1: Wall of Fame. Frivolity and more time-killing ensues until we head back to Rocket's Pad, where the next part of the night is planned out. Nathan,
4: cookouts come and go, but what I have planned for you tonight happens only once a year.
1: What? And we better get going, because we have to rent you a tux. A tuxedo? Yeah. While technically this is considered to be an assignment for Rocket, for Benson, it's a chance to hobnob with whoever was famous enough to appear in a 1980s made-for-TV movie on a network that was going back and forth between second and third place by the time this aired. But first, we meet our next major player in the story, as Benson makes his acquaintance with a brassy redhead cater waitress, played by David Coverdale's favorite human hood ornament, Tawny Katane. Yes, the lady who dances on the cars in that song. But this was about three years before that. What would you recommend?
5: You? Yeah. Two all beef patties, special sauce that is cheese pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun.
1: You really got my number.
5: Just got into town, huh? Is that
1: obvious?
5: Kind of. Where are you from? New Jersey? How's it going? Thank
1: you, Paris. That was just one scene, but trust me when I say that she will become a little bit more prevalent later on. But that's not half as important as our special guest star. And this is the part of the movie that bugged me a little bit because right now I want you to count the number of seconds that this appearance takes place. Now come on, a friend of mine wants to have a picture taken with you. Jaja.
5: Darling. Oh,
3: this must be your little friend. He's adorable.
1: And that's it, folks. 12 seconds, six of which were spoken, is all that we're going to get with Zsa, Zsa Gabor, another one of those personalities who I'm going to ask you to ask your grandparents, or even great-grandparents, who she is. The short version is that she was kind of a big deal from the 1930s to the 60s as an actress and a socialite, and continued to be so up until her passing at age 99. But despite the fact that she was already in her 70s when she made her all too brief cameo, the movie, for some reason, treated her as a big deal. So much so that her name is prominently listed in the opening credits as the movie's special guest star. Yes, even more special than Regis Philbin, who's only listed in the closing credits. And the question I really need to ask myself here is... Why? Yes, she lived a pretty storied life, but why go through all the fuss of having your name up in lights if you're only gonna be seen for 12 seconds. I mean, if it was an expense thing, I kinda get that. But even so, those had to be some very expensive seconds to not only appear in the movie, but to be credited among the main cast. It just seems unnecessary. And tangent over as Benson once again rubs it in Ernie Hudson's face for another postcard.
3: Dear Ernie, can you find Jaja in this picture?
1: At this point, the movie is about 30% complete. And aside from Benson moving to California and moving in with the villain from Dumb and Dumber, there hasn't really been much of a story so far. If only there was some sort of ex machina that would take place to speed things along.
3: Oh, wow. What? is so beautiful the billboard oh, yeah.
1: Well, I guess a crashed car sort of counts as an Ex machina since that would make the car an X machine. And who else does he bump into than our leading lady? And the reason why ABC is paying a raft of money to the Beach Boys, as we meet our California girl, Heather, played by Martha Longley, in one of only three roles she would ever pursue in her acting career. Aside from episodes of L.A. Law and Simon and Simon in the 80s, this would be about as big a break as she would ever get in showbiz. Though, not as big a break as the one Benson and Rocket just put into her car. Well, it's clearly your fault.
5: My fault? You rammed right into me.
1: After you didn't stop.
5: You weren't even looking where you were going.
1: Okay. Act three begins with Benson, Rocket, and the California girl trying to work out something with a car crash. Fortunately, Benson has a trick up his sleeve.
3: Well, I could fix it myself in just a couple hours. That way you and my buddy wouldn't have to report it to your insurance companies.
5: Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, I
3: happen to be a certified mechanic in the state of New Jersey.
5: How exciting.
3: And I do
1: excellent body work.
5: How nice for you. Was your offer still good? Yeah. I ought to have my head examined.
1: But before the California girl goes in for her MRI, she agrees to Benson fixing the car at yet another palatial Pacific Coast estate, but not before a quick California hello. Why don't I just come back?
5: No, you're here. The keys are in the car. If you need anything, I'll be out back.
1: Okay, thanks. And they say New Yorkers are the rude ones. <laughs> Go figure. Benson fixes the car while the movie realizes that perhaps the male demographic might be interested in watching too. As he plugs in his equipment, Benson is now peeping on the California girl's spandex uniformed workout and thinking about something else that he can plug in. Sorry, 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 I, I know that was a bad joke, but come on, the sexual innuendo in this scene's pretty stark. Especially for a 1980s TV movie before the internet was created for a non-DARPA audience. People needed to fantasize wherever they could if they couldn't afford premium cable. And if Jane Fonda and Denise Austin ever taught us anything, it's that people in the 80s got off on people in tight workout gear. All the while, we actually hear a song in this montage that's not a Beach Boys tune. The Pointer Sisters, Jump For My Love. After a series of back and forth scenes of Benson fixing a car for the ladies and California Girl jumping for the male's attention, the car gets fixed. Much to California Girl's amazement. I uh, tightened your belts and I uh, I rimmed you out.
5: I thought my day was strenuous. I'm getting exhausted just listening to you.
1: Yeah, well if you excuse me, I think I'll go home now and collapse.
5: Oh, you poor dear. Can I get you something to drink?
1: Okay, quick sidetrack for a second. This is not exactly Emmy award-winning dialogue or anything, as evident in one exchange that I would like to declare to be one of the dumber ones, if not the dumbest exchange of dialogue in the entire movie.
5: I know, how about a Tequila Sunrise? I
3: had never had
1: a Tequila Sunrise
3: before.
5: It's from Mexico.
3: Hey, Olay.
5: I'm sorry I was so rude yesterday. Mm -hmm. I guess I just didn't really believe you're a mechanic.
1: (laughs) Why would anyone lie about being a mechanic?
5: You know something? You're like a breath of fresh air.
1: So, after what I can only assume was flirting with words written on a typewriter made by Fisher Price, the two of them start to get a little closer. And keep in mind, this is all happening within the same day. Not that I don't believe in love at first sight, but even for something as cheesy as this movie, this is pretty ridiculous. Boy, these sunsets, they man, they're spectacular. If you
5: have
1: someone
3: to
5: share them with,
3: Oh, I'm dumb. Listen, uh, you know, if you've got something to do or whatever, just feel free, kick me out. And
1: I had to open my big mouth. Why'd you say anything? I don't know. Finally, some reality in this movie. I'm not kidding, usually when crap like that is said, more often than not, that's the point where the hookup happens. But we're actually spared of that. At least for now. And in a combination of words I never thought I'd hear myself say in this afterlife time, Charles Rocket becomes the voice of reason. I know her type.
4: She's a regular jaded princess.
1: Oh. An ice goddess. Oh. Total barracuda.
3: I really blew it, huh?
1: The next day, as Benson narrowly avoids various bikers and roller skates on a sidewalk, guess who makes her second appearance of the movie?
5: Nathan Dowser.
3: Wow! Well, if it ain't the raw
5: fish lady. And you remember my name. Well, how could you forget Nathan Dowser?
3: Yeah,
1: I guess it is kind of distinctive.
3: <laughs> Karen, right? Right. How you doing?
1: Hi. Chuck Finley's worst nightmare returns, and in light of the California girl rejecting him, Benson tries to arrange a backup date with Katane. Well, I was gonna ask you out on the date, but you're
3: probably busy or something. And that's all right, really, I understand. Maybe some other time. I'll see you later. <laughs> How about tomorrow?
5: Tomorrow? Yeah, same time, same place. I can even pack a picnic basket. A picnic basket? Okay, then how about some sushi?
1: (laughs) Hmm. Two romantic interests in the same movie. I don't see this backfiring at all, do I? Do I? I don't. Hello?
3: Yeah. Yeah, this Nathan. Eva? You mean...
0: As in, Heather? No, Heather as in Fred. Who the hell do you think it is? You've only known one Heather since you've got to California!
1: Anyway, Benson, at his most shocked and perplexed, decides to see the California Girl for a quick tune-up, preferably within the PG-rated confines of broadcast television. Boy, these
3: sunsets,
5: they're really something. I
1: think we've been through this already. Yeah. Yes, quite literally, five minutes ago. But go on. Nathan. Yeah? You haven't said anything
5: in 30 minutes.
3: Oh, sorry. It's, it's, it's just that I'm... Well, I'm not, I'm not really used to being so, um... Spontaneous? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Why don't you kiss instead of talking to this? this Normally, I'm... Why don't you kiss instead of talking at a
1: desk? Which they do. And before things go from TVPG to TV14, California Girl blows out a candle. Which, strangely enough, seems to have had the wattage of a 60 watt light bulb because when she blew out the candle, the room went about three shades darker. Which, I know is something I should not be complaining about, but I wouldn't be doing so
0: were it not for the roaring fireplace in the background illuminating the room! Oh,
2: you just wasted on the wrong
1: people! <sighs> the more I remind myself that this is a TV movie, the more I don't have to confine myself to the laws of science. And on that note, we've mercifully reached the halfway point of the movie. Hopefully the second half isn't as dumb or contrived, but then again, it's a TV movie from the 80s. I wouldn't put it past them if they did. We'll see how Benson lives out the rest of this California dream.
2: After the break.
1: Tuesday, when Jack visits the shrink, relax.
3: Oh! It's a prescription for laughs and three the crowd. Then Mona's looking for love in all the wrong places. Whoa. I want to kiss Grandma goodnight. Take a number. Mm-hmm. Who's the boss? All starting at eight, seven central. Tuesday. Tuesday, join two special couples for two exciting hours. First, on Magruder and Loud.
5: I have something to tell you.
3: Jenny finds out she's pregnant. I
5: really want this baby.
3: And Malcolm gets some on-the-job training.
5: I'm scared. We're gonna do
3: this. Then, it's the show everyone's talking about. Was it good for you, too? Dave and Maddie take a ride on the Murder Express. Oh, I can't remember when I've had this much fun. And wind up on the wrong side of the tracks. Mm-hmm. Moonlighting, right after Magruder and Loud. All starting at 9, 8 central, Tuesday.
1: Before we get back to the movie, a friendly reminder that we're still doing our Twitter contest. We're giving away nine screener DVDs from popular TV shows of the past few years, and we pin that post to the top of our feed at Podcast. All you have to do to enter to win is like and retweet. That's it. But before you do that, I should also mention that we're going to be adding a prize to the pod, and we'll tell you a little bit more about that just before this review is over. And let's just say it may have something to do with the very thing that we're looking at. In the meantime, back to the subject. And now we continue with California Girl. Act 4 begins with Benson waking up the next day in California Girl's home and getting ready for the day.
5: Good morning, darling. Mm. Are you hungry? I made some breakfast. Uh, How about croissant? It's French.
1: So, for those keeping track so far, we've learned from this Rhodes scholar of the Pacific Palisades that tequila sunrises are from Mexico and that croissants are French. Yet another groundbreaking story from the pages of the medical journal, Duh! <laughs> Moving on, Benson soon squeezes in another dispatch to Captain Monroe Kelly from the movie Congo.
3: Dear Ernie, her name is Heather, and on a scale from 1 to 10,
1: she's a
3: firm 14. What can I say about her, except she's beautiful. She's the girl of my dreams. And best of all, I think she likes me.
0: You think she likes you? You spent the night with her, wake up in her bed, she makes you breakfast, and she teaches you the intricacies of a croissant. And you only think she
1: likes you? I don't want to insult the people of New Jersey any more than I already have, but that statement makes doing so easier than playing t-ball... ...while drunk. Thankfully, the stupidity of that line is washed away by the use of still another montage, as well as the other Beach Boys song that the movie could afford the rights to.
2: to And
1: And at this point, I gotta ask... Was this supposed to be a movie of the week that aired in the early 70s? I mean, think about it. As we mentioned last week, those movies ran 90 minutes with commercial breaks. The fact that there's more padding in this movie than an 80s dress with broad shoulders is kind of giving me the possibility that it might have been. This is now the fourth time-filling montage that we've seen so far, including the opening credits, the tour of LA, Benson fixing the car, and now he and California Girl frolicking about town. We get it. This is a severely underwritten movie that's trying to use visuals to grab our attention, and it has every right to do so, but even 80s excess has its limits. Once that ends, we find out that Benson had exceeded the two-week grace period that he gave himself before he left New Jersey. If he liked California, he would stay. Well... Knowing how he feels about the girl, maybe he thinks he likes it.
3: I think she likes me.
1: So much so that after said two-week fling, he decides to move in with California Girl. And one more time, Charles Rocket becomes the voice of reason. You know,
4: there's no better way to screw up a relationship than to move in with somebody and find out what they really like. Or worse, have them find out what you're really like. Well, mine's made up. You're making a big mistake.
3: All right, all right. In California, things happen
1: fast. And if it feels right, you trust your instincts and go for
4: it. Geez, I wonder who gave you
1: that jerkwater advice. Another thing we're wondering at this point, we're about 60% of the way through the movie, and the levels of too-good-to-be-trueness are breaking the meters. Certainly, there has to be some sort of conflict on the way, right? Thankfully, the reality eventually hits Benson that he's going to need to make a living somehow. How does that brainstorming session go? I just think it's about time I figure out what my future's gonna be. Well,
5: I thought you wanted to start a business or something.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm gonna do it as soon as I figure out what it is.
5: Well, have you ever thought of opening your own garage? Oh,
3: for about 28 years.
5: Nathan, are you afraid to open up your own garage?
3: Afraid? Me? You mean the guy who moved out here all on his own from Jersey?
5: Yeah. Well, that's why you need a partner, like me.
1: On that note, we now get to meet our other main player in the film, Colonel Mustard himself, Martin Mull. He plays California Girl's financial consultant, who ultimately wants to put Benson's dream of opening a garage to life, but not without adding a little bit of that L.A. style to it. Now,
4: the real problem. How do we go about financing this little venture of yours? Okay, we could pull you out of the bond fund, and then leverage the margin. Sounds good to me. Why not? Okay, uh, what kind of money do you
3: have to invest? I have $10,000. That's the money that my dad's insurance left me.
4: Oh. Well, I guess that'll have to do.
1: Oh, boy, we're in trouble, aren't we? (sighs) Not that this was a masterpiece so far, but it's a pretty bad sign when a movie casts Martin Mull, one of the better-known comedic talents of this century and the last, and they give him nothing but straight lines. And not even ones that are said with his usual droll twist like in Clue or when he was a panelist on the Hollywood Squares. He's playing it completely seriously. Then again, it's only been about three minutes of screen time for him, so maybe he'll show us something worth cracking a grin about later. Act five begins with a glimpse inside an abandoned garage that could possibly double as a metaphor for this movie. Big, but vacuous. Nathan.
5: Yeah. You take care of the cars, I'll take care
3: of the concept. Oh,
5: okay. I just thought that. Gosh, it'll be fabulous. We'll go primary. You know, red, yellow, blue.
1: All of which are different colors of flags to let one know that they're making a giant mistake, but go on.
5: What do you think of white imported tile from Italy? Well,
3: white's not a very practical color for a
1: garage, Heather.
5: Not a garage. An automotive emporium. Well,
1: what do I know? I'm just a mechanic. <laughs> Another sign of trouble ahead. Benson being completely oblivious to all of California Girl's questionable ideas, because heaven forbid, men get thirsty too. Regardless, the garage gets built. And for the benefit of those with eyes over ears, the garage looks like Pee Wee's Playhouse if it merged with American Chopper.
2: You know what? Get the <laughs> out of here! And don't f*** <laughs> coming in the <laughs> terminated. <it. laughs> Good as
1: That eyesore aside, the shop is ready to run. But not before Martin Mull steps in, replacing Charlie Rocket as the movie's new voice of reason.
4: You know, a lot of men have tried over the years to please her, and I mean a lot of men. You're the first one to succeed, Nathan. Congratulations. Thanks. You take a lot of vitamins? Yeah.
1: Enjoy. Hmm, that sounded vaguely like foreshadowing. Anyway, Benson tries to get closer to California Girl while on the job, but clearly, there's a difference between work and play. I've gotta go. Bye. Go? Wait a minute.
5: Where are you going? Beverly Hills.
1: What's in Beverly Hills?
5: The glitter crowd. I've just gotta do some last minute hype for the business.
1: Well, how about some company?
5: Well, I'd love some, but... Well, somebody has to stay here with
1: Esteban. After closing things up, Benson heads to a nearby diner for a cup of coffee, when who should remind us that she's still a part of the movie? You have really got a knack of popping up unexpectedly.
5: As opposed to someone who doesn't have the courtesy to show up when he's
1: yeah. expected? Yes, it only took another 25 minutes between scenes, but Tony Catane reminds Benson and the audience that not only is she still a part of the story, but also that Benson is about a month late for their date all the way in Act 3. Which, not for nothing, kind of adds credence to the idea that this might have been a 1970s movie of the week that was stuck in development hell. But they added songs, montages, and the girl from Bachelor Party to pad things out to two hours. There's also further proof that this may turn out to be a fantasy movie once and for all, because Tawny is surprisingly forgiving over the extreme lateness of the date.
3: You know, someone, you're right. I should have called No Excuses. I'm sorry.
1: Truth is,
5: I just wanted to watch you squirm a little bit.
1: How'd I do? Great. Oh, good. Can I have a cup of coffee now? After that bit of pointlessness, it's the grand opening at the garage. And already, cars are lined up around the block.
5: Whoa! Not a bad start, huh? I knew my concept was fresh. I don't know if we can handle all these cars. You know, I'm the
3: only one here, and we don't have no
5: mechanics. Well, we'll hire some more tomorrow. Thank you for making my dream a reality.
1: And it's here where I have to ask another question. We're now approaching 75% of the movie's completion and I can't help but feel like there's something missing from it. After all, up to this point the movie seems to be a combination of wish fulfillment Travelogue, and enough Beach Boys royalties to give Brian Wilson an upgrade in fluoxetine. But after all of that is said and done, how else can they pad out the movie? And more importantly, where's the conflict? Where's the consequence? Hell, this movie doesn't even have a villain. Play back that last minute again.
5: thank you for making my dream a reality.
1: That's it. That's what's been missing from this movie an antagonist to help burst Benson's bubble. No wonder it looks like everything's being handed to him on a silver platter. Nothing stopped him or got in his way so far. He's just cruising along with absolutely nothing weighing him down. Uh, quick, play the next scene. My
5: contribution to the business is over. The concept's hot, the cash flow's flowing. Hey, we're a breakout company.
3: Okay, okay, but I gotta tell you something. I need some help because I was here all alone. And I mean, man, at one time, there was one,
0: Nathan, I mean-
5: yeah. I get the point. Let's
0: have ruin in the evening. Get out of there, Robbie! It's a trap! She's the bad guy! Run!
1: Alas, Benson is pretty much on his own at this point. Also by this point, our fifth montage and our second Pointer Sisters song, as Benson tries to run the business all by himself to the tune of the Neutron Dance. Just promise me
3: you'll call as soon as we get off the phone, alright? Yeah. Okay, thank you.
1: Listen, baby, I love you. Okay, let me save you two and a half minutes that could have went to better story development. An exhausted Benson returns to California Girl's house. Though, at this point in the movie, we may need to consider calling her California Mountain Snake instead.
5: Nathan? Nathan, you're late. And what happened to your uniform?
1: My uniform? What about me?
5: You better wash up before you get everything all grimy. Dinner's on the table.
3: Heather, why didn't you call the mechanics local like I asked you, like I begged you?
5: Oh, ha, <laughs> both are laughs. I'm sorry, it's not funny, but I thought I dreamt the entire conversation. No. You see, I fell back asleep, and I thought it was all part of a dream.
3: It was not a dream, it was a nightmare. It was a greasy, grungy, climey,
5: sweatball of a nightmare. Do you understand what I'm saying to you, Heather? Elliot warned me this would happen. What would happen? Elliot said you were the type to turn into a full-fledged workaholic i mean. What? And he was right. Now, wait a second.
1: Good night, Nathan. Uh, There are so many things I want to say about this scene, but I don't want to come off looking like a sexist. For now, let's just say that Benson is primarily in the right here. Yes, the girl should have called for more mechanics, since that would be her responsibility as majority owner of the company, but Benson is the other piece of that ownership who probably could have done the same thing. Granted, he was working on all the cars by himself, he hasn't lived in the area long enough to know which mechanics would be the best to hire, and that would include even hiring a receptionist who could probably do the job of calling the mechanics for both of them. But sure, have him sleep on the couch because his uniform is a mess and he hasn't washed his hands. Fortunately, we get another voice of reason from an off-screen Ernie Hudson, who sent Benson his Jersey belongings. I passed around the pictures of you and Georgia. All the gang was knocked out by it. And Heather sounds too good to be true. In the very literal meaning of the term, yes. Benson then writes him back.
3: Moving to California was the smartest thing I ever did. It's a paradise.
1: What else can I tell you? What, uh, um, what else can you tell him? Well, let's pretend for a second that him is her so I can properly use this clip.
2: Tell her the
1: that... no! I mean, you have to be a certain level of stupid not to realize what's going on here. The California mountain snake is using you. Granted, those snakes are non-venomous, but the bite is still pretty painful. You're overworking yourself just so you can continue to get sniz on the rag, and now that the slightest problem is starting to creep up on you, things are beginning to fall apart. And now, you
0: have the unmitigated gall to tell Ernie Hudson, a Ghostbuster, a police sergeant working with the Crow, and the Warden at Oz Prison, that everything is fine?
4: Denial ain't just a river in Egypt.
1: (laughs) Act 6 starts with Benson now facing a barrage at the garage, but when he enters, there's suddenly a team of mechanics working on everything left and right, just like Benson requested 24 hours earlier, but at least that's one load off of his mind. The other one, however, is still lingering. Heather, listen, about last night... Forget it, it's
5: ancient history.
3: Well, I'm really sorry, can you forgive me? Of course. Oh, I, I forgive you too.
5: Me? What exactly do you forgive me for? All right, okay,
3: How about this, for the sake of our relationship, we'll make a pact, we just won't argue. Not about nothing, not not even about business.
5: Okay.
1: All right. So, while Benson is inevitably being led into a false sense of security, he clears his head on the beach where we bump into an old familiar voice of reason. You think we could go out and get a
3: cup of coffee or something?
1: Well, I'd love to, but I'm late. I'm meeting Rita downtown.
4: We're getting our marriage license today. Who's Rita? She's a beautician. I mean, actually, she's training to be a beautician. Just met her a couple weeks ago. Now, wait a a minute. What happened to, you know, don't live with them or waiting for the perfect California girl? Nathan, what are you always quoting me for? I mean, that's a dream, right? Sooner or later, you got to face reality.
1: Okay, can you play the last couple seconds of that, please? I mean, that's a dream, right? Sooner or later, you got to face reality. Okay, I implore you to keep that kernel of knowledge in the back of your head. It will become important in a few minutes. Trust me. Rocket exits the movie en route to his next part in Earth Girls Are Easy, as Benson continues to put things in perspective. And as he does, we get one more visit from Mona Loveland from the new WKRP in Cincinnati. And yes, even I admit that's a bit of a stretch in terms of Tawny Catane references.
5: When I first came out here to California, I thought, just by being here and associating with new people that I would be a different person. But in reality, no matter what happens to you, good or bad, you can't get away from yourself.
3: I gotta get going to work. Oh, no, no, wait, wait, wait. When am I gonna see
5: you again? You know where you can find me? Right here
1: on the beach. Well, I'll be looking for you. And I hope you were paying attention to that line as well, because that, too, will become important soon. After Benson clears his head, he returns to the garage, where... All hell breaks loose. starting with a garage that's been cleaned out from top to bottom. Why? Looks like Colonel Mustard explained. So you say
4: they got everything?
3: And more. Oh, we're talking to Savies, Wall, and Jacks. I mean, the numbers are staggering. Have you contacted the police? Well, I was going to, but I thought I'd better talk to you first.
4: Good, no sense bothering them, huh? Yeah, I figured you'd want to contact your insurance agent. Well, under normal circumstances, of course I would. But I think in this case, it would be kind of inappropriate. Why is that? No insurance.
3: What am I supposed to do when the customers come back to their cars?
4: That should be very
1: interesting, and I wish I could stick around to watch. You still got Heather. Bye bye, Nate. There it is. There's the Martin Mull I was hoping to see in this movie. Slick, snarky, smarmy, and yet you still have to love the guy for doing so anyway. But we're not done yet, as Benson continues to hang on to what is already a world that's collapsing around him by turning to the California mountain snake that started this whole mess for help. And I hope the clothes that he's wearing is armor for snake bites.
3: Heather, we're in big trouble. The business is kaput, the money is kaput, Elliot is kaput, but we still have each other. Who's that guy
1: up on the balcony? That's
5: Sean. You met him this morning with
1: the computer? You mean the girl you've been pining for in the entire movie only to treat you like dog shit in the last 20% of it is treating you like an even bigger pile of dog shit now? Stop the presses! Hey, look,
5: Nathan, I'm sorry. But well, the truth is, I hope we can still be good friends. And just out of curiosity... How soon do you think you get your stuff out of the
1: den? Thankfully, he retaliates by pushing her into a swimming pool. Which is probably as PG-rated a thing that you could do on network TV in prime time in the 80s. But, let's not think nasty thoughts. And, as if it wasn't bad enough being placed in the friend zone, what would California truly be without...
2: Then what happens? The cavalry rode to the rescue! The play Then what? The volcano erupted and threw lava over everything in sight! Yeah, yeah. Then what happened?
0: The price of food stuff
1: Is that all? No, 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 the Daffy Duck part didn't happen. In fact, if we were to really examine most of the events of this movie, none of it happened. For it's my painful duty to report to all of you that, with the exception of the scenes in New Jersey, it was all a dream. And the movie can kiss the fattest part of my ass for doing that to me. Remember that first kernel of knowledge I told you to keep in the back of your head? I mean, that's a dream, right? Sooner
4: or later you gotta face reality.
1: Well, it turns out that Charles Rocket was not only the voice of reason, but I think he was also trying to warn Benson that the worst cliché of all was about to crush him like a boulder. Look, I know I've been going on far too many tangents this episode, but of all the clichés there are in any form of media, the one where it was all a dream is probably the laziest, the most unoriginal, the most devoid of any creativity, and it's even an insult to the word crutch! And you know what else? I'd like to volunteer a lightning strike on this cliché, do it! Somewhere down the line, I want to give this tired trope the attention it deserves. But for now, I think the only reason why it exists in this movie is that whoever the hell wrote it had no idea how to end the story. Except, shockingly, we still have about 10 minutes left when Ernie Hudson comes back on screen to send Benson packing. Come
3: on, get ready, you'll miss your plane. Uh, what plane? What plane? California outcome, remember? Well, the West Coast has a sunshine. And up through Bless Vegas, you, you
1: wonderful, man, wonderful ghostbuster. The final act sees Benson once again at an airport that had more relaxed security in the 80s. Only this time he's saying goodbye to the family and to Hudson though thanks to the dream that he had, Benson tries to give himself the advice that dream Ernie gave him 80 minutes earlier. You know, maybe I should just stay for two weeks. Cause that way if I don't like it you know
3: hey, 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 come on no tell me a chickening out Oh
1: no no no. After that, Benson flies to LA. Unfortunately minus the wisdom of Charlie Rocket or the luxury of first class. From there, we come to the realization that California is not as easygoing as everybody says it is. And that includes the weather, because contrary to what Albert Hammond thinks, it's raining a shitstorm in California. Benson also checks into a rundown motel because contrary to the dream he had, that's how the real world works for most people. You don't meet strangers on a plane who then invite you to live at their beachfront house. Shit, that moment right there should have been the point where people realized that REM sleep was kicking in. Naturally, Benson is a little disappointed that nothing in his dream matches with the reality. And after experiencing a few more disappointments, Benson wonders if he was better off staying in... New Jersey! Sorry, had to get one more in there. Just like they had to get one more spin of the title song. So, if you've been keeping track, the final score is Pointer Sisters 2, Beach Boys 4. Five if you count the assist from Mr. Hudson,
3: well, the West Pole a and six if you include an instrumental
1: of it in the end credits. Ultimately, Benson finds himself alone on the beach on a dreary-looking day and wondering if he made a mistake. And if you remember this other line from earlier, when am I gonna see you again?
5: You know where you can find me, right here on
1: the beach. Here's where that pays off. And at this point, I'm going to let the scene speak for itself.
5: Do I know you? I don't know, do you? You sure you don't know me? I'm positive I've only been in California a week.
3: Yeah, I've only been here a day myself. Probably my last one, too.
5: Didn't live up to your expectations either, huh? Yeah, no,
3: not by a long shot.
5: Sometimes when I think about being back in Jersey... You're from Jersey? I'm from Jersey.
0: I'm from Jersey! (laughs) Are
5: you from Jersey? How you doing?
3: I'm Nathan. Nathan Bowser. Hi, I'm Karen Malone. Hi, nice to meet you.
0: Would you like to get something to eat? It might be nice. Okay. I... I
1: just... I just... I... I'm too upset to yell after watching all of this. So, I'm just going to ask this as calmly as I can. What?
0: The fuck was that?! What the flying fuck was this eternal sunshine on the Spotless Mind shit?! Does this mean the moral of the story is that if you dream about somebody who appears several times in said dream, that she'll eventually show up in real life? With that kind of logic, Charlie Rocket and Martin Mole should have been out on the beach with metal detectors, and the California girl should have been somebody, anybody, she should have been there too. Because unless I'm reading this incorrectly, the movie is trying to get us to believe that. And with a minor character, no less, that may have had at best, Ed- Fast. log no more than five total minutes of screen time why not end with the California girl standing in Tommy Katane's place and have her act like a normal person instead of a snob she turned out to be in Benson's dream that would have made a lot more sense than when we got here shit Ja Ja appearing on the beach would have made more sense than this it's bad enough that they added the cliche that it was all just a dream it's even worse that this was the payoff for the past two hours of Mind numbing mindlessness. That's it. I'm done. Fire up the circles now. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery.
1: Let's begin with a few easy targets. The movie used a lot of bikini and spandex shots to garner at least half of the audience's attention. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but this is to say nothing of how that same spandex wound up turning Benson's character into a love-struck tool for about half the movie. Checking off the box for lust. Of course, this also took place in the Los Angeles of the mid-1980s, a mere two years away from when Michael Douglas declared that greed, for lack of a better word, is good, practically all of the LA lifestyle of that era, as well as all the stuff where Benson and the girl try to set up an upscale business without really trying and going bust in the process. Not to mention showing off a life of opulence that even in dream form took about two weeks to attain. Unless you're a billionaire not running for office, this is impossible to the rest of us. So let's not only mark off greed, but also gluttony on account of just how much of LA and its symbol of the yuppie life was jammed down our throats. And while we're splintering off the subject of greed, Martin Mull's character pretty much doing all of the Dream Garage's business sinking while leaving Benson to twist in the wind. I've seen enough document shredding on TV, in movies, and in documentaries about Congress to know a case of fraud when I see it. Also, the very fact that Benson's dream took place over roughly 80% of the movie and was ultimately negated once he woke up, it not only tainted his California dreams once he got there, but once he realized how shitty everything was compared to living in New Jersey, it also helped put his grand plans to start fresh in limbo. At least for a little while, until you get to the ending. That's stupid, stupid, couldn't believe they couldn't come up with a better payoff ending. I already blew out a vocal cord expressing my anger at that moment, so I think wrath is a given here. Just as I'm sure many viewers were pissed off over how it turned out, and they wish that they were watching the movies on NBC or CBS instead. 1985's California Girls earns six out of nine circles of telehell. The good thing about certain TV movies is that most of them only air once. If you're lucky enough to be somewhat entertaining, you get the luxury of being rerun on the network, followed, if you do really well, by a lifetime in syndication. And while I did just spend an obscene amount of time badmouthing the damn thing, I still think it's probably worth seeking out just to see how stupid this whole thing is. But there's a problem. This title is so obscure that with the exception of this copy that I have in my possession that came from the original broadcast with commercials, This is the only copy of the movie that seems to be available in all of existence. I'd like to change that. As we mentioned in our commercial break, we're currently in the middle of a contest where we're giving away some stuff. This week, in light of what we just went over, as well as the fact that some of you listening may need to see it in order to believe some of the parts that we hated the most, we'd like to spread the dark gospel of this movie to as many as possible. But we only have six blank DVDs to burn. Nevertheless, we're going to give those away in our existing contest. The grand prize package will still be the nine screeners we mentioned earlier, but now we're going to add a tenth disc to that collection, an off-air DVD copy of California Girls with original 1985 commercials, while five runners-up will simply just get their own copy of it. If you win, what you choose to do with your copy is up to you. May I suggest making copies of your own and sending them to others who might be interested in stuff like this? Or, as all the MST3K fans used to say, keep circulating the tapes. It's pretty much that. Keep an eye out for a new tweet at Podcast for your chance to win. If you already entered the previous week, don't worry, you're still in the running, and the drawing will still be held on March 8th, 2020. But other than that, this movie really took a lot out of me. Which sucks, because, unfortunately, the Underworld doesn't have a coffee break or anything. I gotta keep on going for the next thing. Wait. Huh? When did we get a fax machine? And... why? Do these things even still exist? Oh well. Uh-oh. It's from the boss. This could be interesting. <coughs> Let's see what it says. Congratulations on completing the first half of the season. Blah 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 blah. You've proven to us that you're capable of handling the work that you're given. Yada yada yada. This marks the end of your probationary period in hell. As a result, you are now entitled to additional benefits. One of which will be arriving in your mailbox shortly. Please use as soon as possible. We'll be watching. Hmm. I'm honestly not sure if this is a good thing that's about to happen.
2: You've got mail.
1: <laughs> a day pass? What's this? I'm gonna turn it over. To the recipient of this day pass, you've earned the right to return to the mortal world for exactly one hell day, or as measured by Earth time, 36 days. During this time on Earth, you must spread the word about what you do to mortals, but without fully exposing your identity as a hell demon. A disguise will be waiting for you at the nearest lava geyser out of here. You must return to hell within the date stamped on the pass. Failure to do so will result in permanent soul dissolution in the acid of your choice. Either sulfuric, carbolic, or hydrochloric. Have a nice day. Okay, I'll bite. Spread the word about what I do, huh? Well, lucky for me I know one place to go for that. Now, let's see, 36 days from today is... April 5th. Oh, I'll definitely be back before then. Well, I've got some work to do. Thanks for listening so far. We'll see you in April. And don't forget... If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. And all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. There's now more ways to listen to Telehel than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate,
0: subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at TeleHell Podcast. Yes, sir? Did you send out the day pass? He just got it left. Though I'm still not sure why we're doing this. He hasn't even completed a full year here yet. Nothing to worry
2: about. It's just a test. If things go the way they're supposed to go, you won't be a problem much longer.
0: But what if he succeeds?
2: Then we're just going to have to make things. A little tougher on him. Won't the big boss get wise that we're not playing fair? Don't worry about that either. I know how to handle my counterpart. Just keep an eye out for our narrator. I want to be sure that my hunch about him is
0: correct.
1: Yes, sir.
2: You seem to be the ambitious one, Mr. Hart. But I know what you're trying to do, and I'm gonna clip your wings before you get a chance to use them. (laughs) (laughs) Can you send in
1: more cough drops, please? The part of the devil's secretary was played by Joan Bishop.